Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame Podcast, presented by Town Place Suites, Waco Northeast. This episode, Olympic diver Cynthia Potter. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by Town Play Suites, Waco Northeast. My name is Jackson Michael, and with me on this episode is Olympic diver Cynthia Potter, a member of the 2023 Texas Sports Hall of Fame class. She was a member of three U.S. Olympic teams and won a bronze medal in the 1976 Olympics. Cynthia Potter was voted Diver of the Year three times and won a total of 28 titles, a record that still stands today. She later served as an Olympic analyst on NBC for three decades. Cynthia Potter and I had a great conversation about her athletic career, her growing up in Houston, and what it was like for women athletes in the era before Title IX. Here is the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast interview with U.S. Olympian Cynthia Potter. You got into uh, swimming at at a pretty young age in in Houston, is that right? Yeah, I was really lucky in so many ways because my father, who actually passed away when I was real young, but I knew him, he introduced me and my older sisters to tennis. We took dance lessons. We took music lessons, piano lessons. We took swimming lessons. We took ice skating lessons. We took horseback riding lessons. If there was something that was acceptable and available for little girls, he found a way for us to to do it. And, you know, thank the good Lord, he had uh, enough resources to be able to offer us lessons in different areas. So, um, you know, I just... I just gravitated towards the things that I liked. What was it about swimming that that you chose that? Well, I loved the water. And after I learned how to swim and I saw people going off the diving board, that's what attracted me most. I I would point to the diving boards and say, I want to do that. And so he researched where you could take diving lessons besides at our, we belonged to a country club and there was uh, somebody that taught lessons and I I think they were good. Um, uh, They weren't necessarily introducing young divers into competitive arenas outside of, you know, the little country club contest that we had. But I just thought that looks like a ton of fun. And I was, I was hyper. <laughs> I, I still kind of am, but <laughs> I, I wanted to do everything. And but diving just captured my attention from the very beginning, and I couldn't wait to go off something maybe that seemed high to me because I like speed and height. So I would like crawl up basically because I was so young to the high board at the country club, which wasn't very high, but it was higher than the one meter board. And, and I would, I would go off of that when I barely could walk just cause I just thought it was just so amazing that you could 
go up high and jump into the water. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that is a great story. So you, you were really young. About three years old when I think I first went off that quote-unquote high board at the club. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So you you ended up with, with Coach Phil Hansel and Nancy Duty. Um, yeah. After the country club, I'm, I'm guessing? Yeah, what happened was my father worked hard during the week, so we would beg him to go to the club and go swimming on Sundays, and he gave us, you know, swim lessons at the at the club, which was great, but then we got to be good enough swimmers, and I had already expressed an interest in diving. I think he asked around to a number of people and got the information that if you really wanted to get serious about swimming, you would go to the Shamrock Hilton where Phil Hansel had a team and there was also a diving coach there. There was also a synchronized swimming coach, which back then they called it water ballet. And it was just amazing. That pool was huge. It was a 50 meter pool, which I'd never seen. I don't think when we went there. And so he, the first thing he said to me was, you have to be able to swim the length of this pool before I'm going to let you take diving lessons. Because I kept looking up at the diving boards and saying, I want to do that. I want to do that. When he said that, I said, let me at it. And I jumped in the water. I, sw- I, I, I don't even know if I knew how to swim properly, but I got to the end of the pool and I got out and said, now can I take that? <laughs> <laughs> Now, I think I bugged him and my mother probably every day. Now, now, now. So <laughs> finally, yeah, they Nancy Duty was the diving coach or the diving teacher coach. And uh, I couldn't wait. And with diving, you know, a lot of us, a, a, a lot of us who, uh, you know, <laughs> never, never uh, really made it past the, you know, first couple of times we tried it. Um you know, it's a little intimidating um, oh. for us standing, you know, a, a few feet above the water and, and then let alone the platforms that you got on. What was it like the first time getting on a platform? When I went to the Shamrock Hilton where the hotel pool was so big and they had a five meter and a 10 meter platform as well as a one meter and three meter springboards. I would look up at the platforms, and there were some people that were using them. And my coach, teacher, Nancy Duty, had been a really good platform diver. So, you know, when I saw people actually going off, I, I said, can I, can I go do it? And she said, yeah. So the first time, I don't remember the first time I jumped off the five meter, um, but I remember the first time I jumped off the 10 meter. I couldn't wait to get up there. And it seems like, you know, it's a long way up there when you look at it from the ground. But when you get up there and look at it from the actual 10-meter platform down, it seems like a whole lot higher than what it did when you were looking up from the ground. And it felt like the first time I ever went on a big roller coaster and the, and the first big down drop on the roller coaster that's the way it felt in my stomach sort of you know jumping up into my throat <laughs> <And> <laughs> it just it was 
like the greatest thing ever. I couldn't, I think I hit the water and I, I mean, it, you know, it's a long way and, and it can jolt you or jar you, but I never thought about that. I was, I, I'd come up and jump out and say, can I go again? Can I go again? <laughs> <laughs> and how so, old were you um, at that point? I would say I probably was seven or eight because my father passed away when I had just turned nine years old and he had taken us to the shamrock a couple of years before that. So I would say, you know, seven, maybe eight when I first went off the 10 meter and I just, from the very beginning, I thought it was thrilling, exciting, fun, crazy. I don't know, just appealed to me. Wow, that is really incredible to be to be that young and jumping off a a ten meter platform. Um, <laughs> yeah, most most of us kids were were afraid to get on the slide at that age, you know, and uh, <laughs> and there you were. That's that's pretty amazing. Now, by the time by the time you entered high school, did your school even have a pool? Did your school have any sort of swimming program for women? They had a, what well, was kind of like an oversized bathtub, and um, they did have a swim team. There was no diving, there were no diving boards. The pool wasn't deep enough to have diving boards, and so I swam for the Lamar High School team and never got to dive in any school competition because Lamar didn't have facilities for that, and I don't even remember if the state swimming championships had diving. I don't remember that um, because I was never in it. But I was already, at that point, I was already going to the national championships for diving. And that was through Nancy Duty? Yes. The, the first time I ever went to a nationals, they didn't have anything called junior nationals, which they have now. But back then... If you could qualify, if you were, I guess, good enough, you could go to the senior nationals. I don't know if there was an age minimum, but I qualified when I was 13 years old. So that was my first nationals in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when I was 13. And Nancy took me to that. And um, the qualification had opened my eyes because I had gone to a regional meet trying to qualify uh, to go to the nationals and if I was in love with the sport before after I went to that regionals and qualified for the nationals I was gaga over the sport and then when I went to my first nationals I saw all these I just thought they were all you know Olympic champion divers I thought they were all so good I wanted to be like them Wow, what what a great what a great experience when you're 13 and going that far, and then and then seeing the greatest divers in the country at the time, yeah. you know, who were older than you. Yeah, it was it was crazy, and I would see some that maybe weren't very tall, like me, because to this day I never made it to five foot two. But I used to tell people I was. <laughs> but I just thought, oh my goodness. There are divers that, you know, you don't have to be real tall. Like a lot of volleyball players were tall. There's some 
divers that are my size and they're good and so i that really even confirmed more so that maybe i'd fit in so but you weren't um what one would call a prodigy in winning these things at 13 um when did you start to to climb up the leaderboard and and start to uh become near the top i think my first nationals i got 10th place in which the finalists were the top eight so i came close to making the finals on the one meter board and by the time i was 17 i won my first nationals um but i had made it out of high school when i was 17 years old because my birthday was real late so by the time i graduated high school the best i'd ever been was fifth in the nation and I was so determined that I wanted to continue my diving, but there was nowhere to do it because there were no programs for girls slash women anywhere in the country at that time. It was the late 60s, and so I thought I was going to have to quit diving. And what happened was I I was planning on being, you know, a co-ed so to speak quote-unquote at the university of texas and my father had gone to school there and i was going to be a longhorn although there was no well to put it bluntly girls women were not allowed in the competitive pool at the university of texas there was not only no program but you weren't allowed in the pool so i thought okay i I just have to quit diving I was going to go to the University of Texas. I, I had my acceptance. I had um, a roommate, so forth and so on. And lo and behold, it was right around graduation time. And I got a phone call one night. And the person on the other end said, this is Hobie Billingsley. Do you know who I am? Well, I don't know whether I wet my pants or what I did, but I was like flabbergasted because he was from what I knew, one of the greatest diving coaches, and he coached at Indiana University. And I didn't know why he was calling me, but I was like, yeah, I know who you are. Uh, (laughs) I didn't want to give him his resume that I could (laughs) have. And so he said, well, um, do you want to come to Indiana University? And I said, what for? (laughs) Because I didn't... I didn't think that I could go there and and have anything to do with diving. They didn't have a, a women's diving team at, at IU. And, you know, they had great men swimmers and divers. And so he explained to me that he had made a deal with the swimming coach, the great doc councilman, that he could take four women divers a year that would train with the men and the rules were such that if the women ever interfered with the men's team, they would be gone. They'd be kicked off. So I was like, yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to do that. What do I have to do? And he said, so he asked me, you know, all the logical questions. He said, well, you know, are you a decent student? I said, yeah. How are your scores? SAT scores. I said, pretty good. He he said, well, you need to apply then. And I said, okay. And he said, this is Olympic summer coming up. 
1968. He said, so you need to get here this summer so you can train with our group and, you know, hopefully maybe go to the Olympic trials. And I was beyond excited. I, I, I was, again, gaga. When I hung up the phone, I went in to my mother, who was sitting in the living room at the time, and I said to my mother, I said, Mom, that was a coach, the diving coach at Indiana. His name was Hobie. That was Hobie Billings. And she said, oh, well, isn't that nice? And I said, I'm going to Indiana. And she looked at me like I had three heads. And she said, you are not. (laughs) 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 And then I had to explain to her what, what he said to me. And again, you know, as fate would have it, about probably a month later after I'd gotten all my paperwork in and gotten an acceptance, et cetera, um, my mother and I got got on an airplane. I'd never been to Indiana in my life, and neither had she. (laughs) And we flew to Indianapolis. The coach picked us up and took us to Bloomington, Indiana, and... I think my mother stayed one or two nights and then I was like a stranger in paradise because I had no idea (laughs) other than I couldn't wait to go to practice every day because that was what I was there for. And so I took freshman English and lived in a dormitory that summer. And that was how I got to dive when I was college age. But the only team I ever represented when I was there was not the college team except for there was like one occasion and that was when I was a junior or a senior Uh, but we represented a couple different team names and one of them was Gatorade Bloomington Gatorade because Doc Councilman and Hobie Billingsley had enough clout in the sport of swimming and diving so the girls could represent that team also we had incredible swimmers. Mark Fitz was the same age as me, so we were in Indiana at the same time. He's a good friend today. Wow. How exciting must have that been in uh, 1972, right? Because you were both on the Olympic team. Yeah. It was It was just so amazing to be around all of these great Olympians when I went to Indiana because the men's team already had Olympic champions and Hobie had already coached, the diving coach, had already coached two Olympic champions in 1964. So by the time I got there in 1968, he had a very reputable, well-established diving team. I was in shock that there were all these great swimmers, medalists. It, it was like being in a whole other world. And our group was like a national team even our diving team, because we had so many national champions that were there training at the same time. So I was, I was in hog heaven. When we return, 2023 Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee Cynthia Potter talks about her journey to the Olympics on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by Tamplay Suites, Waco Northeast. 
this is Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman, and I listen to the Texas Hall of Fame podcast. And if you're not listening to it, you're missing out. When you come to Waco, be sure to stay at the Town Place Suites Waco Northeast, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll also enjoy the Town Place Suites free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. Next time you come to Waco, Make the Town Place Suites Waco Northeast your home base on the road. Welcome back to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by Town Place Suites Waco Northeast featuring 2023 Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee Cynthia Potter. So I'm guessing that even though you're part of this great team comprised of national champions, you know, the best you're probably getting was some sort of financial aid package. There probably wasn't an athletic scholarship for you. Oh, no, there was no such thing. Title IX hadn't even been sniffed yet. Um, I paid out-of-state tuition for four years. My father had had the wisdom to create a college fund for my sisters and me so that that's really the only thing we were going to be allowed to use that money for. So um, I was able to to do that. I might have been able to get some financial help through my academics because I I did well in school, but, you know, it was amazing. No scholarship ever to go out of state and participate with the club team only until there was a time when I did represent Indiana and it was sort of a makeshift last minute thing that happened. So when I started winning the nationals, which after I'd been at Indiana for that summer, getting close to the end of the summer was the national championships. And and I won my first nationals. And he kept telling me, you're going to win the nationals. You're, you're going to win the nationals. And I didn't believe him, but I did. And then I qualified for the Olympic trials and I was lucky enough to go. And we had a wonderful group that went to the Olympic trials in 1968. I ended up being fourth place in the Olympic trials and they took three onto the team. So I was called the alternate. And back then they made the alternate an official member. And today they don't necessarily do that. Well, that is just incredible that you went from not even having an option to continue competing until you got got the phone call from Hobie Billingsley. <laughs> yeah. And then just in one night, your your whole life kind of shifted a lane, if you will. And yeah. um, and then by the end of the summer. You're on the Olympic team. I couldn't believe it myself. I don't think anybody could. Uh, you know, I didn't even think I knew how to dive yet. I had just become a national champion. And I, the place where I ended up being the alternate was on the 10-meter platform. I didn't know how to dive platform. Hobie had taught me all these dives that summer. I, did, I didn't know anything about platform diving. And I ended up being fourth place on the platform, which was amazing. The springboard was my comfort level at the time. I was scared on the platform, even though 
I loved the height and the speed and whatnot. I was scared to do all those new dives that I had really never done before. So every time I dive platform, every single time, practice or competitions, I had um, I had a level of fear. I'm, I, you know, I don't ever try and cover that because I think most people are a little bit scared. Um, I have a hard time when divers say, oh, I've never been scared off the platform. I'm not sure I would believe that. I, it, this is probably true, but it's hard for me to believe because there are certain things that just, they were scary. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as a viewer uh, watching it on TV, I am I am scared for the divers while I'm sitting yeah. on the couch. So um, I, I would imagine it would be almost like jumping out of an airplane, even if your experience is still, still a little nerve-wracking, I would think, every time. So um, 1968, you're, you're just entering college, and, and you've won the national championship. You're an alternate on the um, 68 team, and then by 72, you, um, you're in the top three on the Olympic team. Um, what what did you learn during that um, during that four year period, and what was your first full Olympic experience like? The first thing I learned after '68 was that I wanted to make the team proper. I wanted to be diving in the Olympic Games, and I've heard people say that you know once you go to an Olympic trials or go to an Olympic Games, it's addicting. You want to go back. Uh, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but the people that I admired the most in diving were the ones that were getting to go dive in the Olympics. And so I sort of guess I committed in a way right then to in four years, I'm going to be on that team and, you know, I'll do everything I can in my power to be a part of the next Olympic team. And, you know, who knew what that would hold in terms of the Olympic games in Munich? Um, because I did win the Olympic trials on springboard and I was second on the platform, but Munich was such a crazy games for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I know you probably know some of the background on that, but Mm -hmm. we, we, um, dived, and finished the night, and I didn't, my events were over, but the last event I think was a men's event, the night that the next, you know, in the middle of the night, the next morning, basically, uh, was when the terrorists, the Palestine Liberation Organization, came into the village and killed all the Israeli uh, coaches and athletes, and that's when it started, but, you know, we didn't, we didn't know about anything like that when we were at the games. And, and I was starstruck. I was, uh, once I made the Olympic team in 72, I, I didn't do a really good job of sort of refocusing and committing because the U.S. divers always won medals and they usually won gold medals. So I didn't think a whole lot about what I needed to do in order to be that person. Cause I had won the Olympic trials by a good bit, uh, on the three meter springboard. And I had been doing well internationally. I, I won a lot of international competitions 
So I just, I don't want to say I expected to be a medalist, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't something that I thought a whole lot about. And I hurt myself the day before the opening ceremony. I hit my feet on the platform doing a, a practice dive. And um, that was my downfall in a lot of ways was that I, I just wasn't focused enough in everything that I was doing at the games to keep myself safe and to be able to to compete for that gold medal. I hit both feet on the on the lower platform doing uh, what we call a, a lead up dive that you would add another somersault or half somersault to do the actual dive on the 10 meter. But I was doing the takeoffs on the lower platform and I hit my feet and I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't get out of the pool. It was awful. And I thought I had broken my right foot. And, you know, after going to get x-rays and being carried and all this, that, and the other, and I was supposed to dive two days later in the preliminaries. The opening ceremonies was the next day. And on the x-rays, it didn't show that I broke my foot, but you could actually see the bruise on the bone on the top of my foot where I had hit the platform. And it was, I mean, it swelled up like a balloon. And I mean, I was heartbroken, but it was my, it was really my carelessness that led to that in a lot of ways. Cause I always had fun diving. I always had, had a great time and I had so many wonderful friends that were international divers. So even at the Olympic games practicing, we were having a good time and I just wasn't focused enough I don't blame anybody but myself for what happened. And I couldn't march in the opening ceremonies because I couldn't walk. And so, ironically, or coincidentally, Mark Spitz was supposed to swim the first day of the games after the opening ceremonies, the day after the opening ceremonies, and that was when my preliminaries was going to be. And so we watched the opening ceremonies together because he wasn't going to march either because he was swimming so many events. And as you may or may not know, he won seven gold medals. No, mm-hmm. Nobody had ever done anything like that before. But so it was my birthday, the day of the opening ceremonies. And we were allowed in the men's quarters, but the men weren't allowed in our quarters. So I went to the men's dorm quarters in the village and watched the opening ceremonies with Mark. And my family, three of my sisters and my mother had come to the Olympics to watch me in Munich and another friend. And so I had, I had some, some people there that I was close to and they went to a florist store in Munich and told them the story that their sister, daughter, whatever had hurt herself and she's supposed to compete the next day. And it was my birthday. The florist gave them every flower that they wanted to take in the floral shop. Wow. And they came, I got a pass for them to come in the village and be with me. They they came in with, I mean, armloads of beautiful gladiolas and flowers. And, and I mean, it made me cry. And, and it was just, it was just so heart-rendering what they were doing for me. And um, poor Mark, he was like, what? We're, I'm being invaded. <laughs> with flowers <laughs> and Cynthia's family <laughs> who 
was crazy. But anyway, yeah, it was it was amazing. But by the time my first event came, which was the next day, um, I had to have a number of injections of Novocaine to, oh. to be able to dive. And I'm lucky I even got to dive because I couldn't I really couldn't walk. So I dived and I did make the finals, but I got seventh place. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I should have competed for the gold medal. But fortunately, one of my best friends now, she wasn't at the time because we were competitors, won the gold medal. And she was from the U.S., Mickey King. So, you know, the U.S. prevailed. But I considered seventh place at the time a failure. Wasn't wasn't good, but I... I couldn't feel my foot. But you overcame, and that's 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 really a, a a lot of great great things in that story. And then you come into 1976, that four years later, which is really impressive to make a third Olympic team. What was it like to be a part of the 1976 Olympic team in the middle of the bicentennial? That was so different for me and thrilling. And one of the one of the biggest differences was that it was in Canada. So we sort of had the advantage being from the U.S. of having so much support and so many people there for us. And it was like being in our home country. I did walk in the opening ceremonies there. Fortunately, knock on wood, I was healthy and I didn't want to miss it. But you know, when we walked into the Olympic Stadium for the opening ceremonies, it was so emotionally breathtaking because of all the support and the people and the fans that were there for us. And I was um, walking on the front row of the athletes. There were dignitaries in front of us. And then the flag bearer, who was a good friend of mine, too, Gary Hall, he was a swimmer at IU. <laughs> and he was a flag bearer. But I was on the front row walking in with the U.S. delegation. And I'll tell you what the best part about it was. The front row were the shortest people. That was when I became very, very happy about being five, one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> because the gymnast and me were on the front row. So it was, it was, it was magnificent. It was a lifetime of thrills that I, I, it's hard to explain. I guess it was similar to the first time I ever dived in an international competition and uh, had the, the anthem played for me. I know it's very different today in a lot of ways, but it, it was very emotional. So, uh, you know, I couldn't have been more proud. And I knew so many international competitors who didn't have the, the same kind of, you know, so-called luxuries that we had in the United States. Yeah, well, that's that's great. And then you won a medal in the, in those games, correct? I did. <laughs> um, uh, I was I was pretty focused, and uh, I, you know, the Americans took first and third. I was third. That's really incredible. I mean, being an Olympic medalist for the U.S. during the bicentennial, I would think that that has some sort of special um, merit. It must, it must have been extra special, I, I would think. Yeah, I, 
in a lot of ways it was. Um, I think we're so compartmentalized as elite athletes. Um, sometimes I hesitate to call myself that, but uh, for, for what we're involved in and, and, you know, I see it today. I've, I've been involved in coaching and, and broadcasting for a long time since I quit diving, but I think a lot of things sort of don't register with us the way they might uh, today with the type of, you know, bombardment of world, global activities, et cetera. Social media was not a thing. You know, we were lucky if we could find a telephone to call people or we would get a lot of telegrams. And But the bicentennial was, even though we knew it, and it was celebrated, we were thinking about, you know, each and every little thing we had to do, point this toe and make sure you did this and make sure you didn't eat that and make sure we didn't have a a lot of the same, you know, coaches and psychologists and all that. So, you know, our, our coaches and we're trying to, to play multiple roles and it, and it was, it was incredible, um, tough at times and, and of course, always the benefits far outweighed any sacrifice I always thought, and I still do. But it was a time when even in Munich, and I'm going back because I didn't know what the PLO was. I didn't know much about places in the world other than what we had studied in world history that had the history of you know, warring factions for, for so long. We didn't, we didn't know about the Palestine Liberation Army, the PLA, the PLO, that we, we just, we were pretty naive to a lot of world global issues that I'm glad today people do know more about those things. And I still think that it's hard for a lot of young people to digest that the things that happen in the world, because we didn't really know about a lot of the atrocities other than, of course, we knew about the world wars and what had happened with the Olympic Games and Jesse Owens and things like that. Yeah, it certainly was was a different time. And, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, the world is changed. And really, uh, I would say one of the the things that, you know, for lack of a better term, changed the world, and certainly for the Olympics, was that 1972 Olympics. Um, oh, yes. And, and the tragedy that, that happened. Um, yeah, my biggest regret was that I did not go to the service that was, the memorial service that was in the stadium. Um, we were afraid. I, I left the village, and I didn't come back until after that memorial service was over and the games resumed. But that was one of my biggest regrets about Munich was that I didn't go to that memorial service. I wish I had. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was a, a, a terrifying time, you know, I mean, it never happened before. Nobody knew what to expect. And, um, you know, I mean, you're, uh, you know, you're in your early 20s and, you know, you're just there to, to be in the Olympics, you know, to live out yeah. your dream, you know. Um, we just couldn't believe that there were people that died. And and when it first happened, um, they they wouldn't let us out of the village. They 
they closed the village so that we couldn't get out. And the athletes started getting very, uh, let's just say, impatient. And people would think they were going to leave and they would go to the the checkpoints to get out and they were closed and you couldn't leave. So the first chance I got, I left and a couple of the other divers and we were all finished diving by then, but a couple of the others came with me and came to my mother's apartment. And I, I don't know where it was located in Munich, but it was a train ride away or a couple of train stops. And I didn't want to go back in the village at first because I was scared. And, you know, it, it, it was unreal. People say surreal, unreal. It was unbelievable that that could happen. And, you know, a couple days before that, my family had been in the village and my youngest sister, who was actually shorter than me because uh, she was <laughs> very young, she had her picture taken with some of the Israeli, I think, basketball players because she came up to, like, their hip. And, you know, we looked back at those photos and just cried because even though it wasn't them that got, uh, you know, murdered, it, it was their teammates. And I don't know, it was just, it, it was crazy to, to even try and, and think that that happened. It was literally the unthinkable. Yes, completely. I don't dwell on it, but I'm, but I don't avoid talking about it either because I think it's a time in history that, I mean, people say, you know, the Olympics were never politicized until a certain time. I think there were always politics involved. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's all the world governments together. I mean, there's going to be politics involved. I mean, it just that's kind of what they do is politics. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's. I wanted to ask before we close, you know, you grew up in Houston and that's your hometown. What does it mean to uh, be a part of the uh, Texas Sports Hall of Fame and be inducted now? I would say it's one of the biggest honors ever because I never expected to be included in in such a group. Knowing what I know about the sports, especially the professional sports arenas in Texas and how Texans love their professional players. And growing up, some of my parents' best friends were Bud and Nancy Adams, and he owned the Oilers. Oh. Yeah, we called him Uncle Bud. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I remember George Blanda, and I remember all these great football, baseball players, and, and granted, I'm talking about a time when, you know, women athletes were not celebrated like they are today. And I'm just flabbergasted that um, I am being included in, in such an elite group. I could not be more honored, grateful. Uh, it's just a tremendous celebration for me. And I've, I've got some family coming and I'm just, I'm over the moon about being included. It, it is really quite remarkable thank you for listening to this episode of the texas sports hall of fame podcast presented by Tamplay suites waco northeast come visit the texas sports hall of fame in waco and when you do book your stay at the Tamplay suites 
Waco Northeast. Remember to follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube to keep up to date with all of the great events happening at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame.